Ultra. Welcome to Lord of the Rings Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze the movie The Two Towers, one back half of a really good speech at a time. I'm Cassandra Fredrickson. I'm Norman Mitchell. And today we'll be talking about Minute 204, which starts with Sam finishing the line from yesterday, um, even if you were too small to understand why, and ends with Faramir approaching Sam and Frodo. Yet again. Yet again. (laughs) Lots of minutes happen to end with Faramir's face. Yeah. For such a short time, he's really in this story. I think it gives him more of a presence doing it like this than it would otherwise. Yeah, I think so, too. There's just, there's a lot of transitions that are Faramir. <laughs> between minutes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we get the we get the second half of this wonderful speech that we didn't even really talk about yesterday. <laughs> My bad? Question mark? Um, I mean, we did in a roundabout way, yeah, sort I, of. I, nah, kind of. We spent we spent an hour, to, uh, nearly an hour, talking about everything but the speech. Really, <laughs> we didn't even talk about like random things in the visuals from the minute, like the fact that Aragorn is clearly green screened when we see him at mm. the end of last. Yeah, minute. I'm not about Thaden's helmet. Yeah, Thaden's helmet doesn't look so great. I think it's the, no- looks, the nose. Yeah. Is- Amers looks better, but maybe you're just distracted by the the, the horsehair on the top of it, because Theoden doesn't really have that. Theoden doesn't have a, like a crest of horsehair on his helmet like Amer does. Yeah. Which kind of you would think that the king would have a fancier helmet. Than, he does have a fancier helmet. I mean, it, he just doesn't have the plumage. He doesn't have plumage. You would think he would have plumage. It's very important. Maybe that's only for like. The, Maybe Amor only had time to grab his dress helm and not his actual combat helmet. No, I think that is his actual combat helmet because badass. Because but those uh, because those plumages are a dress thing. They're not like you don't wear them in combat. You wear them for like jousting and like for dress events. Oh well, maybe I don't know. Like the crazy stuff, like you see on the tops of heraldry attached to the helmet. Did he have it on when he was on patrol and he found Theodred? I think he did. Maybe so... he just likes this helmet. That's that's his helmet then. Yeah, he only has the one helmet. <laughs> why would I? Why would I not want the horsehair? Because yeah, being banished that sucks. Um, but if he has time to grab his horse, he has time yeah. to grab his armor. But like, there's some part of me that's just like, on... oh man, imagining Amor like sneaking back into Edoras at night to scavenge trash for food. No, <laughs> just dirty Amor. He's a raccoon now. But that's that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but, like, okay, being banished is one thing, but, like, being on patrol is another thing. Clearly, yeah. you're supposed to be wearing your combat helmet. Yeah. So that's his helmet. Yeah. Fair enough. But, yeah, this speech, this whole thing is so good. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so my... So my, my argument... Yesterday, um, about Sam's acts of, of heroism, um, is condensed here in this minute. 
um, when he says, but I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think that this is Sam, like, this is Sam being just a very good person. He's picking, he literally picks Frodo up off the floor here. He's just like, come on, back on your feet. Yeah, what we are we holding this. on to, Sam? Well, I like that it's after, what are we holding on to, Sam? And he's holding on to Frodo. Yeah. Bless. Yeah, he's saying there are some Bless. things worth fighting for. <laughs> he's literally saying it's worth it to him to fight for Frodo when he picks him up and he's literally holding him when he delivers that line. Yeah. And that is beautiful. Yeah. And then Frodo starts to get this look on his face like he understands. He finally, like, really understands why Sam is even here. Mm-hmm. Like, he gets it. He's like, Sam is here just for my benefit. Sam is here for me. And then, like, they have this beautiful little exchange of looks. And then in the commentary, I think it's Philippa that talks about this. It's reused animation of Smeagol, of uh, Smeagol's face. Right. But they wanted to reuse this animation specifically. One, they didn't have a lot of time when they decided that they needed the Gollum reaction shot. But they reused the animation of him of the moment when Frodo says Smeagol. Mm-hmm. Which is why the first part of his reaction to what Sam is saying is so, like, wide-eyed and revelatory. And then it sort of sinks. Mm -hmm. And they reuse that animation because they wanted to get across this idea that there's some part of Gollum that, like, and specifically Smeagol, really, that really understands what Sam is saying. But he also understands... Kind of because of what he's become, he'll never be a part of that good world that Sam is describing ever again. That's sad. Yeah. Well, that's kind of like the elves in a way, right? Because the elves are... Like, the elves are so intrinsically tied to the earth that they either have to leave entirely or they're just going to fade. Like, you can't, they can't, like, evolve or change in the way that men and hobbits can. Right, in the way that hobbits eventually just become human. Yeah. As magic leaves Middle-earth and it becomes the modern world, hobbits just fade into humanity. Which presumably is what happens to any elves that stayed behind, that didn't happen to make the journey. I just thought that they, like, died. They, maybe they died. Maybe they become human. I don't know. Or they just became like trees or something. I don't know. Yeah, they just became trees. The Ents just became trees. Because when Elrond... Granted, Elrond is like... Elrond when, is special. Elrond... No, 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 no. When Elrond is telling Arwen what awaits her, um, granted, he's lying. Well, he's leaving out the part of the truth. Um, yeah, he's, he's... Educate your child. Lying via omission. And he's being extremely manipulative. But, like, I got the idea that Arwen would just stay until she wasn't there anymore. Like, she just faded. Mm. See, the montage that accompanies what Elrond tells her not that long ago in the grand scheme of things, but I guess like an hour ago in the movie, uh, implies to me that she would literally live forever alone. She would never fade. She would just be stuck. Well, no, he literally tells her that she will fade. Yeah, but I don't know if he means literally, or just that because she'll be so alone, she'll, like, fade as a person. 
and just become a husk, but still live. That's creepy. Like a wraith? Yeah, kind of. Okay, but that's fading. Like, go crazy, but still be alive. Just forever, until something kills her. I've never read it that way. Because elves are immortal. Unless they are literally killed by an outside force. Right. Neither age nor disease touches them. I just assumed that because she doesn't want to leave for the Grey Havens, um, where magic still exists, that because the magic is leaving the world, the magic that sustains her life and her immortality will leave as well. I mean, that makes sense, too. I've just always kind of taken it as, like, the bleakest possible way he's trying to tell her what will happen. Damn. Because, I mean, it's frame... That image of her walking through the woods during that monologue is like, oh, that's that's incredibly bleak. Just how bleak could this be? And that's exactly where my brain goes. Oh, I see. Yeah. Just to be, like, alone, depressed, and lost in your own head forever, but never able to die. Sounds like a fate worse than hell, so... That's, that's like, the implication I feel like Elrond is giving her. He's like, I'm trying to explain this in the worst possible terms so that you will do what I want you to do. But is that what actually happens, though? I don't know. I don't think so. I I imagine that elves either... Any elves that are stuck in Middle-earth after the last ship leaves either eventually fade into nothing or... Because some choose to stay. They... I would kind of assume that without the magic of the elven race... If it actually leaves them, they become mortal in the way that Elrond's family can, but not by virtue of choice, just by virtue of the magic of the world leaving. Yeah, that's that's what I meant. Like the the magic. But they don't is, die when that happens. The magic is fading, so they fade, and then they like. I just have, assume like, they become basically become human what, over they, like, time. They don't like crumble instantly into dust. No, it's not like. It's not like a portrait of Dorian Gray situation. <laughs> no, I don't think that's what happens. I was going to say Mother Gothel, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think that's what happens. I don't Dorian Gray or Mother Gothel out of existence. That'd like, be sick. I mean, that'd be really sad. But like, they just like go from Orlando Bloom to cursed Theoden to dust, like in a matter of a few seconds. I don't. I don't think so. Or Legolas leaves. <laughs> I'm just like, as an example, like, <laughs> no, pretty elf to decrepit old man that looks like if you blow on him, he will die. That's funny. And then you do so and he dies. Just dust. Dust on the wind. Oh, but there's a, there's a, So this speech is inspired by a, a monologue in the book that is much more specific and tied to the greater lore of Lord of the Rings. Uh, it happens Because he mentions Baron, right? Yeah, because in the book it happens in the chapter... Um, the stairs of Kirith Ungol, and it's Frodo saying that uh, basically that when you're in a tale, you have no idea if it's a happy or sad ending because you're the person in it while it's happening. Mm-hmm. But when you hear someone tell a story, you always kind of know if it has a happy or a sad ending before they get there. And uh, then Sam kind of tells this this short sort of re- really really snappy synopsis of the story of Baron. Um, Baron, now he never thought he was going to get that Silmaril from the Iron Crown of Thangorodrim, and yet he did, and that was a worse place and a blacker danger than ours. But that's a long tale, and goes on past the happiness and into the grief and beyond it. 
and the Silmaril went on and came to Arendelle. And why, sir, I never thought of that before. We've got, you've got some light in that star glass. And then he like, he brings up the, the Gladriel thing. But like this moment of just kind of bringing up stories and never really knowing how they're ending is sort of comes from the book and then they turn it into this like pep talk moment in the movie yeah well i mean and the the end of that conversation we have almost world word for word um like 10 minutes from now in the movie yeah yeah because that that conversation ends with the oh you've left out one of the chief characters right sam wise the brave yeah and yeah it's pretty much word for word right out of the book I like the adaptation of um, that exchange. It works. It works in the book because you know they're just resting on the yeah mountain side. They're resting partway up the steps because Gollum has disappeared because he's slinked off to go talk to Shelob. Some stairs and a, a tunnel. Because <laughs> <laughs> Gollum has, has sneaked off to go tell the big spider that you know she's going to get some food soon. Yeah. Hey, delivery. Tip your driver. It's not delivery. Oh, God. It's shire meat? It's some hobbits. (laughs) It's DeFrodo. DeFrodo. Oh, my God. I don't know. That was bad. It's mad flesh. Um, But, no, I like the adaptation of their conversation into this moment because it serves... A similar purpose, um, and it's still, to me, I think it's still in spirit and in keeping with the intention of the book. Yeah, and it's not loaded with all this other stuff. Right. And I feel like I was looking for the text of this speech, and so I stumbled across, like, some old forums. Granted, they were from, like, when the movies were coming out. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of people were really salty about this speech and it's interesting that that has morphed into like this is one of the most iconic moments in this movie and in the trilogy well this is like this sells the message the like this sells the message statement of like the whole story yeah like it's all boiled down right here mm-hmm. of all three movies all three books whatever you want to like think about this boils down well really it boils down like the core narrative of Frodo's story, which means it's really the core narrative of the story. It's overall the story itself. Right. Um, in the book, kind of tying it to Baron some, also kind of ties it to Aragorn too. Because Aragorn is a descendant of Baron. Right. Wait. What? Really? Yes. Oh yeah, because they're cousins. Yes. I keep forgetting they're related. I was like, yes. wait. Isn't Arwen a descendant of Baron? Yes. They are both descended from Baron and Luthien. <laughs> I forgot they were like 48th cousins, whatever. <laughs> whatever. I, I, however so, family trees work. <laughs> it's some, it's like a relatively small number as far as like whatever cousin. Uh, I You could figure it out knowing how many generations uh, removed Aragorn is from Baron. So versus, many more than Arwen. and then and then how many generations Arwen is removed from Baron because when you're when you look at that the first number is like the lesser generational difference so like second cousin twice removed means that one of you is 
only two generations apart from the relative you're determining that from, your grandparent. You're only two from your grandparent. But twice removed would be two steps away generationally in another direction. Look, are the difference between you two. Okay, so... (laughs) So... We've had this conversation off mic before. No matter how many times you explain to me how this works, I will not understand. Okay. (laughs) Because I grew up just calling everybody who was relatively around my age, regardless of how they were related to me, a cousin. Anyone who was young, or like, and, you know, in my generation, anyone who was in my mom's generation is an aunt or an uncle, regardless of how, like, they are related. And anyone who's my grandparents' age is Lolo or Lola. So, like, <laughs> I don't understand how that works. I think I'm, like, Pat, like, I, and I also would need, like, a tree in front of me. <laughs> That's fair. Because I'm visual. There's, so, like. The the most helpful thing I've ever seen to describe this, and they draw it out step by step, and it makes it make a lot more sense, is there's actually a Vsauce video about this. Oh, but that guy has a weird voice. He does have a bit of a weird voice. Is that the one but, with the teeth? No, I, that okay. that's um Matthew Santoro. Okay. I like that you know who I'm I watch YouTube about. stuff, okay? That guy has, like unnaturally bright white teeth. Yeah. If they were fanged, I'd be scared. Just a monster. Yeah, he's a vampire. He's just hiding it. He's just filed his teeth off to hide it. Who is his dentist? His dentist is a wizard. I think he's Canadian. Oh, okay. So his dentist is free. (laughs) Zing. Um... Yeah, man, this, this speech is so good. I could just gush about this for a it's while. It's really good. And I like that... Well, I don't like that it's... Okay. So the thing about... For me, the thing about sad things being timely... um, Like, I enjoy the fact that the media is still relevant to our present day. But I regret that fact very much. Because... <laughs> the sads. But... I... The thing that I like about these movies and this story in general is that it it does in its own way act as a mythology for maybe not for like England but like like a I don't know like a human mythology like it has all of the parts of what we why we remember stories and what makes them relevant to like the human condition right which is completely intentional right and this con- condensation of that basically is so um poignant and so important i think especially i mean it's important whenever you watch it but like yeah and i guess when they were writing this they got to uh fran and philippa pretty much wrote this section of the movie because mm-hmm. they wrote most of the dialogue between a lot of the dialogue between characters mm-hmm. um they got to what are we holding on to, Sam, and then just stopped writing for a while because they couldn't figure out what to have Sam say. Well, yeah, I mean, you kind of write yourself into a corner. You're like, it's like brewing a, a pot of coffee. 
like this this whole lead up is like the pot of coffee and then Frodo's like, Oh, what are we holding on to? And then you suddenly have to switch to an espresso machine. And you're just like, ah uh, <laughs> I need a concentrated <laughs> shot of caffeine that's also emotions. It's just like right uh, to my heart. Like, what are we holding on to, Fran? I don't know, Philippa. <laughs> Each other. And they're like, Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> that's good. That's good. But how do we say that? How do we say that in a way? That is not gay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and this is... Okay, but, like, for real, though. Like, if, if if one of these two... If this was, like, a heterosexual relationship, like, this would be, This like, would be where the kiss happens. Yeah, this would be, like, the sunset, like, the romantic, like, swelling of music and, like, the underscore of the theme. Yeah. But they're not. But, you know, take that for what you will. <laughs> but Ian McKellen made sure that they did just enough. At every turn. God bless him. Like, he knows what's up. It's like, you need to hold Frodo's hand. You need to make sure that, you know, you can't be afraid to touch each other. You need to be able to hug. Mm-hmm. Good for you, Amy Kelly. Because the subtext is there in the book. Oh, yeah, there's tons of it. I mean, it's there. It Moments like that are the things that, you know, it, it's all people had for representation for a long time was, was subtext like that. Right. So, you know, people cling to it. It becomes very important. Mm-hmm. And it is very important. And I like, tr- I try not to, um, cause I know that, you know, people don't dig the shipping thing sometimes. Right. So I try to like remain fairly neutral. But what, during... I'm almost conditioned to see that because of how much anime I watch. What? The shipping thing? Because of how close, like, uh, young male relationships are in a lot of shonen anime. Yeah. And how crazy the shipping community gets. Yeah. I'm almost kind of conditioned to see that. And, like... That's interesting. And when you look at, like, best friends that are younger dudes in an anime... A cultural difference. Yeah. And it's it's the way that they portray friendships, like, in in anime versus in Western cartoons. Yeah. Like, you, you literally, in a lot of shonen anime, have one, like, the best friend character willing to literally die... For their best friend over over nothing. Gestures like, gestures at Sam and Frodo on my screen. <laughs> one of my favorite shonen anime opens with the rival character who becomes like the best friend character. Like one of the first things that happens is like crying over the main character's corpse before he's resurrected. But what? Y- yeah. What the hell show are you talking about? Yu Yu Hakusho. Oh, I was like, oh my god. Like he. That's hardcore. Like, he breaks into the wake of the main character because he's not invited and he just found out he was dead, like, from the paper in an obituary. Oh, my God. And, like, he, break, he like, shows up at the wake uninvited and, like, breaks down. That's horrible. It's very moving. And, like, that's the, that's the, like, the first, like, that's when you realize there's more to this rival character than the first couple of episodes let on. Oh. Oh my god, the main character dies in the first couple episodes? In the first episode. It's the first thing that happens. <laughs> that show opens with, this is our main character. He also happens to be dead. That's oh, how the oh, episode okay, opens. Okay. Oh my god. What the heck? It, it is a, like, it's one of my favorite first episodes to anything because it does the, it, it, it sets your expectations for a certain amount of supernatural stuff immediately in a way that's not totally jarring. Mm. Because it opens with a monologue, like, this is our main character. He also happens to be dead. And then it goes back and shows you how that happened. God, you would love The Good Place, then. 
Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, like stuff like that in like young male and and young female relationships in anime is so much more common. Like that level of closeness and like intimacy and dedication, and like affection and is emotion. Just, right, is just not as prevalent in a lot of Western media. Yep. So when I see it, like I pick up, I pick up on it because I see it so much in other things that I watch. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm more primed to see but it. But is that intentional? Like, are some of these, um, these, these, uh, people who create and write for, um, anime, like, is that their intention or is that just, like, a cultural difference between, like, Japan and here? Well, this, um, there's a really big, I, I think it's cultural. I would, with how prolific it is, I would assume that it's cultural, just in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's there's a big emphasis on, like, platonic, dedicated love between friends. Yeah, because that's absolutely important. Yeah. But I think that, like, the, the I guess the cultural difference thing is that... How much affection is kind of... We have been conditioned as a society to view any, like, there's... There's, like, a stupid sliding scale, like we were talking about yesterday. Yeah. There's, like, a sliding scale of affection, and, like, if you reach a certain threshold, like, your affection becomes, like, non- Romantic, not platonic. Yeah, which is stupid. And that line is generally uh, between emotional and physical affection. But you can absolutely, like, be physically affectionate with your friends. Well, yeah, absolutely, like- Like, you hugging can. your friends is But, uh, in general, in media, like- Kissing your friends on the cheek is important- <laughs> In general, like, in Western media, physical affection is always kind of painted in a romantic light. Yeah, I know. And that's, like, it's kind of like a double-edged sword because I enjoy looking for, um, like, subtext um, in media because I do. And while also, like, acknowledging, like, you can't discount this friendship as it's being portrayed either because that is also very important yeah exactly i mean you've been watching a lot of sports anime so like why you call me out like this um, (laughs) the longing looks between friends and sports anime are particularly potent at times (laughs) like the sort of but like that sort of camaraderie specifically like the camaraderie of a sports team working towards a single goal Mm -hmm. like that sort of uh display and um view of affection between friends is really important to build the feeling that this is a team. And I think that in, like, I don't watch a lot of, um, like, actual sports, because uh, I find... Well, because watching... Act- <laughs> Dramatized sports are just more interesting to me as a person. Well, because I don't, get- don't want to be like, oh, you watch the sports ball, because that, that's, like, don't... That's, that's, that sucks. Like, let, let people enjoy things. But, like, I don't watch a lot of sports because I'm just not into it and but if you care about the individual people playing the game yeah then it's better like i'll watch hockey for you. i guess um hockey fandom is like a whole other thing but the the i think that that level of uh trust and physical affection is more acceptable for some reason on like in in sports teams because like western sports teams because like well, there's the patting each other on the butt thing. Yeah, yeah. And then they, like, just leap into each other's arms and they're just, like, screaming because they're so happy they won. But that's, yeah. like, that is culturally, accept- culturally acceptable. But, like, yeah. Sam grabbing Frodo and, like, 
saying like I'm committed, buddy. I'm your friend till the end is not. Yeah, it's or, it's a uh, it's like a weird line. Yeah, and it's somewhat inconsistent, but also I think that we're primed to more accept that when it comes to a team because it is because team based sports are about working towards a single goal. Yeah, and like we're just primed to accept all of that sort of stuff. Because we view the team as, like, a single entity. But we're the team members in the team-based sport of life, Norman. It's true. It's true. (laughs) We gotta support each other. So I think, like, there's interesting stuff in that regard, I guess, in in media. And you can look at media made in different countries and kind of see where that sort of line is drawn. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't have anything, like, revelatory to say about this thing. But it's just, like, it's, it's, it... It's a conundrum of of um, consuming media. And it's starting to get kind of better in, in like, American media in general, mm. uh, especially in children's media. Yes. So there's that, like, shows like Steven Universe. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, this, uh, well, we, like, got way off into other things because well, it's easy to we're talking the, about Sam and Frodo's relationship. We're talking about the nature of stories too. Yeah. And then that's that's just like a whole other can of worms. Yeah, because I mean, Frodo kind of has a point in the book too and like the moment that this sort of comes from when like when you're in a story, you never really know how it's going to end. Like you you never know right what kind of story you're in. But when you start to hear a story, you can kind of guess whether it has a happy or sad ending. And that just comes from story conventions. Mm-hmm. And then when things don't line up with the sort of conventions they're um, they're using to tell their story, sometimes it's a pleasant surprise and sometimes it makes people kind of mad. Yeah. When it's just like, oh, I thought this was a horror story. Why does it have a happy ending? Like, depending on the kind of horror story it is. Mm-hmm. Like, that can upset people sometimes when stories don't line up with their expectations. Last Jedi. Anyway. What? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I love Last Jedi, but, like, that's a big part of the backlash. Whoa, whoa, (laughs) whoa. This is the wrong show, and that is a whole, like, that is a whole other, like... Yeah, but I mean, like... Miniseries. But that's that's where a lot of the backlash against... Some amount of, like, the legitimate backlash against Last Jedi comes from is expectations of fandom not being met when it comes to how a story is told. Like, that's where some of the more legitimate backlash against that movie comes from. Mm. And, I mean, that's not the only movie you can probably point to with that kind of fan backlash. Where, like, you can look at the stuff that you would consider legitimate arguments and be like, I understand why you're upset about this, but it doesn't upset me. Yeah. And when it comes to story structure things, I I mean, that's one thing. I guess, um... That's what I'm getting at, is like... The more recent example for me was um infinity war yeah infinity war 2 there's there's a lot of backlash there's a lot of like because you liked infinity war i i really liked infinity war but i really i absolutely understand why some people didn't because you know you go into infinity war and like i guess kind of spoilers but it's been out for months like yeah spoilers if you haven't seen infinity war like if you people were expecting you know a big set piece superhero movie centered around the characters that we've like come to watch across a decade but the movie is about thanos yeah and thanos is the main character the narrative is driven by thanos's actions yeah and i thought i think that was a really clever way to write the movie because you get out of having to tie a dozen narratives together 
in a way that you probably that don't. That is satisfying. That is satisfying. Which is you, impossible because there's like how many of them? Exactly. So like <laughs> you can't serve everyone's narrative in that way. But when you make the characters that have been the main characters in their own movies for a decade the side characters and focus on one one character's arc, you get yourself out of a lot of the problems of having to write the movie everyone expected, but then it's not the movie everyone expected. Right. And I understand that. I just really like what they did. Yeah. And I did not. Yeah. <laughs> and that's fine, people. Yeah, it, it is fine. It is totally fine to disagree about love of media. I love a lot because... of things that people think are bad. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Uh... <laughs> but, like, enjoyment of media is completely individual. There is no right and or wrong answer. I think that, like, when it becomes problematic, because, like, humans are conditioned to be passionate about stories like like sam is saying in the book like you hear a story and you know you have an idea of how this story is going to end because it's just like in our dna but yeah when it becomes problematic is like when you just i don't know when you make it problematic like stop fighting people about these stories like it's you be passionate about them but just like be also also be respectful of people's opinion right and like i there, there have been things in the past that I initially either didn't particularly enjoy or wasn't quite sure how I felt about. And when I saw them again or read a bunch of, read a bunch about them, I started to like them more and gave them more of a chance for things that were in the book or the movie. Right. And sometimes, like, you come to a story too early. Yeah. Like, it takes you, it takes you a while to understand what they're doing with it. And, like, like, I didn't appreciate Alien when I saw it when I was eight. Well, yeah. I was just like, oh, man, eight. this is awesome and scary. Like, but as an adult, like, when I when I watch Alien, I understand more about what's so brilliant about some of the direction of the movie and the way that the movie is put together and, like, hiding the monster and all right. that sort of stuff. And I, I guess that ties into this speech, too, because, like, Sam talks about how, like, people... People understand what really matters in stories, even if they don't understand. Like, you you understand on a level that is... Um, yeah, there's something basic. Like, if a story yeah. has something powerful to say, or if a particular visual presentation affects you just by watching it, even when you're young or before you understand why it works that way, you might not understand what it is that the movie is doing or the story is doing. Mm -hmm. But when you learn... When you start to learn why it did that thing that way, you understand why it affected you before. Right. Yeah. That, that's exactly what Sam is getting at. Like, I didn't understand when I was a kid that the part of the reading the alien is so scary is because you don't see it until the climax of the movie. Not clearly. Ugh. You just get all these hints at what it can do and glimpses of its anatomy at a distance and in shadow. And then when you finally see it and it's this totally like inhuman thing well, yeah it's an alien norman <laughs> yeah like it it has punch and i mean like a more modern movie that does a good job of that although i think it's uh not as good of experience when i saw it on a small screen as a big screen i don't think it worked as well is cloverfield mm. like when i saw cloverfield in the movie theater i thought the way that it used the monster was like awesome because it's inspired it, it's clearly inspired by alien mm -hmm. In the way that it used the monster in that movie. And it did it really well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like, I don't know. I'm rambling now about this <laughs> stuff. But yeah, and I I really like the 
this this thing from Sam, uh, the thing specifically that I think is cool about this speech, other than the the punch at the end of the there's some things in this world worth fighting for, Mr. Frodo, mm-hmm. uh, is the well, how could things go back to how they were after they got so dark? Yeah. After so much bad had happened, like because that is an implication that like when you're engaged in a story, you are in the main character's head, you're in his world. Like how if it's affecting the main character like this, it's affecting you like this. How can it be okay in the end after all this has happened? Like that's that's Sam particularly talking about the way that stories affect the listener. Mm. It's a reflection on what's happening to them. And like putting this all over like Theoden shouting victory and and Gandalf smiling while he smacks an orc with his staff. <laughs> uh and that green screen Aragorn uh, which is clearly a reaction shot from somewhere else in the movie. Eh, whatever. You know, it is what it is. And Merry and Pippin, like, watching in awe as the Ents win the day in Isengard is, like, it makes it land. And it makes, like, the reaction shot from Gollum and and Frodo, like, having to ask, you know, what are we holding on to? And the way that he gets picked up, it makes it all land better. Mm-hmm. Like, the montage kind of being porn because they're like, oh, we need to film more of this. <laughs> we didn't... We need to, we need to, we need to fill this. Uh, we didn't, we just have him walking over here and saying a couple of things. And then we have the end of this speech, (laughs) but it worked. Like they really made it work given the content of the, the speech they have. Well, it's also talking about like how, if you are in the story, how limited your point of view is because you don't have the luxury of being told the story, knowing that all of these other things are happening. You yeah. only know like what is happening to you personally. And I think that is what sticks the the hardest for me or like what has the most impact for me now because, man, shit's hard. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And like, how could the end be happy when so much bad had happened? Yeah. But, you know, like it's a passing thing, this shadow. Yeah. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Yeah. That's the whole, like, you know, the sun shines brightest after a storm thing. Right, right. Yeah. Which is just a beautiful little sentiment. Yeah, it is. Makes me cry. I love you, Samwise Gamgee. We were watching these minutes again, and I was just, like, sniffling. Just like, oh, God, it's so good. I want to write this good. <laughs> I think the most the thing I'm most impressed with is how succinct it is, um, especially in comparison to the book. Yeah, but like a like a two minute monologue is pretty long. Yes, um, but you, I I guess in like the broader scope of things, yes. But like how succinctly they are able to just take. I mean, the the trilogy is like what twelve hours, like very nearly twelve hours of story, two minutes, two minutes of of dialogue. Yeah, and you're really, like, hammering home the whole kind of point. Like, the reason we're here yeah. is, like, because there's some, there's some things in this world worth fighting for. Yeah. Like, there you go. Chef kiss. Mwah. Magnifique. <laughs> uh, man, you said, you said Last Jedi, and I've been conditioned at this point, which is so sad. Like, just... I don't know. To just avoid that conversation. Yes, because, good God, man. But yeah, anyway. So, yeah. I, I was just I mean, like... <laughs> I don't know. I, I had like a legit like flight or fight. Even though we were talking about like the the way in which people <laughs> view stories, like it seemed like a pretty like natural thing to bring up. Like Last Jedi and, and Infinity War are like yeah. two really recent examples of this feel, sort of... Feel how you want to feel about a story and don't ruin other people's enjoyment of that thing. That's right. 
That's my succinct take. That's okay. my hot take for, for today. For the same reason, don't <laughs> call people basic for liking pumpkin spice lattes. It's delicious. Let people enjoy things. Screw you. <laughs> That's my hot take for the day. Um. Anyway, so <laughs> you can send all one-star reviews and hate mail to... <laughs> Please don't do that. Um, you're missing the point of our entire conversation. Uh, well, we have a Facebook listener group, um, Fellowship of the Mic. Tell us about, tell us about, um, when you realized the first time that like you were passionate about stories, be it about like Lord of the Rings or like I don't know. For me, it was like Sherlock Holmes. Like Sherlock Holmes was just like, oh my god, stories are awesome. I mean, for me, it probably really was, like, The Hobbit was, like, the first time I felt so, like, strongly attached to a story. Mm. Um, yeah, we like stories here. Tell us about some stories. Um, and, you know, if you feel the need to give us a one-star review, that's fine, I guess. Um, but we really prefer five-star reviews over at Apple Podcasts or the Podcatcher app of your choice. Uh, we thank you guys for listening, regardless of how you feel about... <laughs> Our views on The Last Jedi, I guess. Um, and, of course, we're from the website DuelingGenre.com. Uh, check out all the other wonderful podcasts there. And we'll be back tomorrow to see what Faramir has to say about all this Hobbit right? nonsense. Uh, approaching our heroes warmly. Yeah. Well, I think he's hesitant, but we'll get into it. Bye. Bye.